They're called EasyJet. But for Britain's most upfront new scheduled airline, life can be anything but easy. I don't care if there are children around. Get me somebody that is going to give me some answers. I've listened to everything everybody said, and I'm still standing here waiting. It ain't a bus service, and I'm not happy. But when your owner's a 32-year-old multimillionaire with a passion for orange, and you don't care who you give your number to, <laughs> it really can be the high life. That was the start of the TV show Airline, a documentary series on ITV that went behind the scenes at EasyJet. At its peak in 1998, Airline was watched by 12.6 million people and only EastEnders and Coronation Street were watched by more. The 32-year-old multimillionaire owner who was referenced in that clip was Stelios Haji Iowanu, now Sir Stelios. At the time, EasyJet was an upstart brand challenging the establishment. Today, it's the largest airline in the UK by passenger numbers and one of the largest in the world. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Sestelios about how he founded and built EasyJet and the wider Easy family of brands, and the work he's now doing through the Stelios Philanthropic Foundation, which includes a new award for entrepreneurs in the UK, £300,000 of cash prizes. Sestelios grew up in a wealthy Greek Cypriot family and worked for his father in the family shipping business. He then started his own shipping company called Stelmar, but he had ambitions beyond that. The entrepreneurial nature in me was not satisfied with having started a shipping company and I said I want to try something different. Uh, I think one of my motivations, uh, talking about a father-son relationship, I wanted to prove myself to my father and to others that I wasn't just you know, a rich studies boy, so I wanted to prove myself outside the shipping business, and I wanted to prove that I can create a, a household name, a, a famous brand, in the sense that shipping companies are not very famous because they're not consumer-facing. So I, I wanted to, to build a brand that everybody talked about. So I looked around, and at that time, I think um, uh, Virgin Atlantic uh, was looking for a franchisee or had a franchisee that was looking for investment to operate the route between Athens and London. So that was my first interaction with the airline industry. Uh, met Branson briefly at the time, and, and then I said, I have to research that. And, and the trip to the United States was almost a road to Damascus because Remember, in 94, the skies in Europe were still closed, pretty much. It was a series of national legacy airline monopolies. So uh, America, the United States of America, was the place where private airlines started developing and competing, and the low-cost model was invented by a company called Southwest Airlines. So, you know, how do you research the airline industry? You get on a plane, you go to Seattle, you go to Boeing, you say, you know, how much for a plane, and which is the best airline I can look for? So Boeing told me, you know, go and fly Southwest Airlines. And in the process, I, you know, for the first time, and usually for a rich boy, I stayed in a cheap hotel because I said, if I'm researching the low-cost industry, 
I can't stay at the Four Seasons, so I stay in the Motel 6 at the end of the Southwest flight. And that's when I said, well, maybe you can have one brand that does more businesses. So look, if, if the positioning is low cost, being called Southwest is a geographical denomination. It doesn't tell customers anything about your price point. Uh, being called Motel 6, maybe because of the connotation of a motel, says something about the price point to expect. But um, that's when I started looking for a brand that would have the connotation of value for money, which can be used in more than one industry. And you know, famously, I sat in a bar in London and I started scribbling on a, on a napkin. My first startup was called Stelmar, after my own uh, name, the first letters first four letters of my own name, and the word maritime, mar. So Stellair was the business model, the business plan, if you like, the working title of the airline. So it was Stellair, 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 until I realized, well, it's not a very international brand. It's not, it's not going to fly, so to speak. So um, I tried a couple of others. Uh, Value, there was an airline called ValueJet. I thought of the word light. I think Continental used Continental Light things like affordable, cheap, and then I wrote down the word easy, and, and that was it. The rest is history. What happens next between then and November the 10th, 1995, with the first flight? Because for so many people, they maybe would not have progressed beyond the idea, particularly an idea that's outside the sector that they have, have traditionally been in. How do you go from this idea to, to November the 10th, 1995, when you've got the plane, you've got the route and you've got the passengers. What were the key moments between, between those two points? Well, uh, first of all, let's not forget the investment from my uh, father. So, um, you know, th- this was not a startup, but I, one can argue that nowadays with the functioning stock market, uh, a startup in the Proreca raised the money, if not from the father, from, from the stock market. But essentially, I had a business plan. And I raised money from my father to go and make it happen. Now, the first thing I realized very early on, and I think that has stayed with me for the rest of my business career, is that I'm not an expert at everything and I cannot know everything. And you have to hire the right people, which could be employees or it could be business partners, to operate most of these companies. So in reality, EasyJet on day one was not an airline, it was a travel agency selling tickets on an airline operated by a company, GB Airways. GB Airways was an independent airline that was also operating flights under franchise for British Airways. So an established operator, if you like. And all we had to do is list the planes. They were operating them. We dictated the product um, inside the cabin, if you like. There was all economy, that nothing was for free, that, you know, my, my claim to fame is I sold the first cup of coffee on a plane <laughs> for, for, a, for 25 pence. And um, the, the idea is to do what you can do well and you can do differently, which was to market and sell directly to the public. Again, another world first and leave the airline operations to others. And I have applied that philosophy in most other industries. I'm, I'm, I mean, nowadays I don't operate anything myself. There's always an established industry player behind every easy brand. Could you just remind people of the market at that point, early 1990s, mid-1990s actually by now. This this is not the era of sort of widespread travel and flying across Europe. What happens with EasyJet obviously changes that, revolutionises how people travel. What was the market like that you were trying to disrupt with those incumbents? Well, it was it was flag carriers. So British Airways, KLM, Air France, 
Iberia. And, you know, they had, although the, the official cartel Ayata by that time was not allowed to operate as a cartel, but essentially they kept prices high because their costs were high. So these airlines in, 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 in airline speak, they're operating a system called Hubbard Spoke. So they convince people to go from anywhere to anywhere via their, their hub. And for Bridgeshire, was the hub is Heathrow, and for Air France, it's Charles de Gaulle, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the innovation was the point-to-point -point system that Southwest was operating. So EasyJet came in and said, I'm going to fly people on average for two hours, and I'm going to charge them about, on average, 50 pounds, when British Airways for the same flight, on average, was charging 100 pounds or a lot more sometimes. So you basically change the business model to reduce the cost base by 50%, and therefore you reduce the fares by 50% on average. Now, with promotions and special discounts and um, you know, special deals offered through newspapers, we ended up selling seats at 29 pence, not 29 pounds. So you know, the, the, the process of changing the price to fill the plane was also another innovation. So aircraft until 1995 were happy to fly around one-third empty or two-thirds full, 66% load factor was normal. Now EasyJet is 95% full. So by changing the price, you actually sell more of the available seats on the plane. So all of these things were innovations at the time, and they changed the landscape because they created a new market. I didn't have to get the British Airways passengers to come and fly with us. We created new demand. The market grew. How quickly did it become clear that you had traction? I mean, one, one can argue and be optimistic and say I knew on day one, but of course I didn't. I mean, in reality, the company floated after five years, or almost to the day. So five years after the first flight, the company floated on the London Stock Exchange with turnover of a couple of hundred million pounds and um, being profitable. So somewhere in the first five years, it became, you know, from a crazy idea to, you know, a sustainable business. You know, that's why I have this fixation with uh, the research startups. The, the rules for the entering the entrepreneurial boards is to have started in the last five years. Because I think that's the point at which EasyJet was proven. When you look back, what, what was the biggest challenge in those early days? Oh, in the first five years, we had many, many difficulties. I mean, um, buying an aircraft that was late in delivering and having to cancel, you know, one quarter of your flights for two months. <laughs> you know, and, and I made a mistake, if you like, but, uh, you know, as, as I was buying more planes, the plane was late in arriving and therefore we had sold the seats and didn't have a plane to operate. To um, things like, um, you know, the challenge from British Airways. I mean, I don't know how many people nowadays remember Gold, but basically they, they just copied our business model and launched an airline directly in competition with us called Go, that we ended up buying in the end. <laughs> don't forget September 11 happened <laughs> before the flotation, or actually it happened after the flotation, but it was in that five-year period. So, it, you know, some incredible challenges occurred, but luckily we, we had the funding and the... The, the financial strength to keep going. Was there ever a moment when you thought it might not succeed? Um, I, I guess, you know, secretly without admitting it or telling other people that at various times in those examples again, you don't have to go very far to remember how difficult the airline business is. If you asked me in May 2020, mid-COVID, when the airline was grounded, maybe, you know, I would have admitted that I had the I doubt whether it can carry on, but it did. So uh, it's, it's incredible how 
how quickly you can recover from, from a very difficult situation, like grounding the whole airline because of COVID. EasyJet and Sestelios quickly gained a reputation for their distinctive marketing. This included the bright orange colour of the EasyJet brand, but also how the airline wasn't afraid to target rivals. Sestelios and other EasyJet staff even gatecrashed the launch of British Airways' new low-cost airline Go, which was meant to be a rival to EasyJet. They booked seats for Go's first ever flight and turned up dressed in bright orange boiler suits. Also, as you heard earlier, EasyJet even had its own TV show. The first thing to remember is the airline business is very media-friendly in the sense that it attracts more attention than it deserves, and therefore it's easier to get free publicity. You know, there's a lot of PR value in flying, maybe because it defies gravity, maybe because people feel good about going on holiday. So it, it's easier to create free publicity with an airline than with current, for example, which most people consider boring or, or a nuisance sometimes with the, <laughs> with the extra charges at the end. Not that airlines don't have extra charges, but, you know, current companies have these challenges. So I, I think it was the fact that it was the airline industry that created all this free publicity, the fact that it was very low fares for the first time. When, when people were paying two, three hundred pounds to say, come and fly for 29B, it, it's newsworthy. It's not just a discount. It's unheard of. And that creates free publicity. I also capitalized a lot on the David and Goliath which also works up to a certain level. And then you realize that in the eyes of the public, you are the David now, so you have to be careful. So, so you're there, the Goliath. Sorry, I always get mixed up. <laughs> the two. Um, you, you're the Goliath. So um, you, you can play David and Goliath, providing you're genuinely David and the other part is the Goliath. Don't try and play it if it's not true. You touched on British Airways and and go and and clearly as EasyJet scaled up and became bigger and bigger and went from startup to a, to a medium size into a large business, there was challenges. And with with go, what did you think when British Airways first launched that business? And then how did you have to change and respond as as EasyJet? Well, the the first thing is I thought it was a backhanded comment in the sense that it confirmed the business model in Europe. I I, I remember um, having a, a quiet chat with them. Um, the guy who was chairing Ryanair at the time, David Bonderman, and he, he, he told me, he's an American, and he told me, it's not a bad thing because it shows something that not only the, the Paddies and the Greeks do, but also the British. <laughs> Remember, it was the Irish and me, a Greek, that was actually doing low cost until that point. And all of a sudden, mighty British Airways endorses the low cost business model, the low cost flying. So it was a backhanded compliment because it endorsed the business model in Europe for good. And from that point onwards, people accepted that it's a different way of flying, but it's safe and acceptable. And um, the other thing is I called the lawyers. So, you know, we, we, we didn't hesitate to go to court and claim unfair competition. And I think all of that discipline, British Airways, it actually forced them in the end to sell the business to 3i, and then we bought it from 3i. But it... it you know, there is, there is in competition law something called abuse of dominant position. So when you have a dominant position like British Airways did in 1998, you don't want to be accused in court by, you know, a smaller competitor that you are abusing your dominant position. So it was the use of, of legal means that I think kept them honest. How satisfying was it in 2002 to actually buy Go? Well, um, 
It was expensive, and it took, we took a big risk. I mean, we paid a decent price for it. And if you if, if you care to look at the historical share price of EasyJet um, after the acquisition of Go, it went down for a period of time before it going up again. So every acquisition has a risk, but you know we have to do it because we're taking out the number three competitor in the market. So had Go stayed independent, it would have been you know almost the same size as EasyJet. And almost the same size as Ryanair, but EasyJet and Ryanair became two companies much bigger than this, the smaller goal that was taken over. I also wanted to ask you about the TV documentary in the late 90s. Why did you decide that was the right thing to do and how much did it benefit EasyJet? Again, it's the sort of risk you can only take if you're young and if you're small. <laughs> so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it today. I wouldn't invite the cameras in my office today, no matter what I was trying to promote. You know, that it had an enormous amount of risk. It was once and all, which means that, you know, it showed the airline sometimes with disappointed or angry passengers. But in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it put the brand, the easy brand, into 12 million households every week watching ITV, primetime television, you know, the same number of viewers, roughly as Coronation Street and EastEnders, and that sort of publicity you can't buy. Because it is 12 million people every week watching your planes take off. Yes, they do see some problems, but at the end of the day, the whole thing works and it makes the brand familiar to them. So they go off and when they think of flying, they will consider the brand. Are you glad you did it? Absolutely. In 98, it was the right decision. And again, I, I, think, I think the decision to stop that series, whatever, five, seven years later, was probably again the right decision. I mean, now there is no shortage of fly on the world documentaries. I mean, when you watch television, Every, every little business does one, you know, so from hotels to escape to the chateau to whatever. So it's not that popular nowadays and therefore it doesn't attract the same audience and therefore it's not that interesting. If another business leader came to you today and said, asked you whether they should do it, what would you say to them? You mean a flounder world documentary? Yeah. It depends how big is that business. I mean, some big business do it. So I, should, I shouldn't really be categorical. I mean, some, I know cruise lines, for example, allow flounder world documentaries happen. So, you know, people still believe there is some value in it. Sestelios stood down as chairman of EasyJet in the early 2000s, but he and his family remained big shareholders in the airline. Since then, he has looked to build more businesses using the Easy brand. He has at times disagreed with the management of EasyJet about their strategy and has had legal disputes with others who have tried to use Easy in a name or brand. EasyJet by 2002 was obviously a, a good size listed PLC, has just acquired Go, had just placed an order for the first big aircraft order with Airbus. So um, I, was, I was never the chief executive of EasyJet in reality. Was, there was always someone else. At that time, it was Ray Webster, the guy who started the, the company with me. Uh, but I was the non-executive chairman. And, and, and a couple of things happened that convinced me that it was the right time to, to step aside. First of all, the city wanted an independent chairman, as it's, it's the rules and it's right. And, and, and secondly, obviously, I um, also wanted, I, I had this conflict of interest in a way, because I own the EasyJet brand. So what perhaps not many people are familiar with is that the legal structure of my own company, Easy Group Limited, is... One where I kept the ownership of all the easy brands, including the EasyJet brands, and therefore I can charge a royalty 
to the brand for using the name to this date. So I think it's only, it's only fair if you, if you are the supplier of a brand not to be on the board. I, I hope that answers the question, but in, you know, I think it's, it's, it's best if I step off the board. Do you think it's always important for a, for a founder to, to either quickly or eventually stand back and, and put in, I know you had a CEO already, but to hand over leadership being CEO to somebody else? For me, it's a it's a great point in in time for the company. I mean, it's it's a it's a sign of maturity. It means that the the baby has grown up. It's no longer a baby. Whether entrepreneurs do it willingly or not, I mean, it's a big question. And, and remember, I have this unusual relationship where, uh, although I stepped aside, I'm still very involved. I have an income stream from the royalty from the turnover, and I also have a shareholding, which gives me a, a, a dividend stream, income stream. So it's not as if I've sold out and left completely. I, I've just found a, a happy medium between being involved and having a financial benefit out of it and, and not running it day to day. And the more businesses I can find for other people to run, the happier I will be. So if you go through the list on easy.com and look at all the easy businesses, for me, sign of maturity and success is if there is another designated chief executive and chairman of that business. I was reading an interview with you um, from, from the late 2000, I think it was 2009, when you said you had a rule where you were happy if a third of the businesses were good, a third were average, and a third of them were basket cases. Is that still the approach? Is that still what you think? When, whether the, the rule of one third, one third, or one third applies depends how many times you try. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I've learned that in, in order to, uh, to have a successful thriving brand, which also stops other people from using the name, you need to be in as many businesses as possible. If you look on our website at the moment, we have about, let's say, 100 active brands. Now, not all of them are successful, profitable, large businesses, but some of them have a, a commercial business model, and I will keep them going for as long as possible. So for me, it's better to have a brand rather than not to have a brand. Now, how many of them as companies become profitable, sustainable, pay dividends and royalties and make uh, create shareholder wealth is a different question. So uh, I, I can't put a number as to how many of my hundred brands, if you like, will make it to that maturity stage. But um, definitely, I would, like, I, I, I would like to keep trying to that. I mean, we still launch brands every day. So we still take risks with new brands. How do you spread your time today? I mean, you, you talked about that third, a third, a third. Can you just explain sort of what your priorities are in 2024? A third is nurturing the easy family of brands. Again, I don't run any of them. I sort of manage my own private company called Easy Group, which runs the, the brand, and therefore that's a third of my time. A third is on unbranded investments. I, I think, you know, so, someone who's made money in my career, I have a duty to invest some of that money in other areas outside the easy brand. So I have a very active, um, um, you know, if you like, stock and options trading um, strategy. So basically I have a Bloomberg screen on my, on my desk on my left and, and I look at it every day and I trade in options and um, buy and sell shares and that's another third. And the last third is giving back to society. So anything from running the Young Entrepreneur Awards in the UK, which we're running at the moment and interviewing the candidates and mentoring the winners to organizing all the other charity projects we do, um, you know, from the food from the heart to, um, you know, giving donations and, and having partnerships with other recognized charities like the Princess Trust or the Red Cross. 
All of that takes money and time. Why is it important to protect the easy brand? What we call brand protection is the function of stopping other people from using the easy brand without our permission. And, and there are two main reasons for that. The, the first one is to protect the consumer from confusion. In, in other words, because we've successfully extended the brand in so many areas, you know, that we, we list on our website 100 brands. The consumer can be forgiven for believing that the, the other brand out there, the easy something else brand, might be part of the easy family of brands owned and controlled by Stelios. And in doing so, they might give them more faith, more trust, pay them more money, do business with them. And of course, we have no control over that company and in, we don't control their standards. And therefore, we don't want to be held responsible for what they do to the consumer. So the first objective is to protect the consumer from being confused that this brand thief is a member of the easy family. The second is to uphold the rule of law. I mean, we do have legal rights. We own 1,200 trademarks, and these trademarks have a legal function. You know, it's no different to your right to property, for example. You own a house or a car. You have the right to stop other people from taking away or using that car or that house without your permission. Uh, or if you want to go to something more esoteric and similar in concept, you know, copyright, uh, you know. Artists have rights to protect their songs and their musical creations. So in the same way they have rights to protect their copyright, we have a right to protect our trademark. How much time do you have to dedicate to doing that? Uh, luckily, I have a lot of lawyers that I pay to do it. <laughs> so it, it, it's, not, it's not all my time. But um, I don't know. If I, if I had to allocate within the one-third of the Easy Family of Brands, maybe a third of that is legal costs and legal action. I mean, again, nowadays, I, I, don't, I don't have to go to court myself to be a witness. There are other people in the team that, um, you know, were there at the time and they have a better connection about what happened. So uh, it's not as time-consuming for me anymore. You have been criticised at times for some of the cases you've, you've pursued. What, what would your message be to those who have criticised? I will go back to the previous two points we are protecting the consumer from being confused. It's funny how many people come to us and say, is this part of your brand? And of course, you realize that that happens after the confusion has been resolved. In other words, people realize they're not part of the brand and they come and tell us that they're not or ask us if they are. But imagine how many other people do business with these brand thieves and they don't realize they're not part of the family. And also, you know, I think that it's for the judges to decide. I mean, we have legal rights in brands. They may have some legal rights in brands. At the end of the day, a judge decides. And above that, the Court of Appeal will decide. So I, I don't think that um, trying to opine on a legal case before judgment is, is really particularly wise, if you like. Because you might be proven wrong. I mean, the judge may decide that we're right. As, very often they do. I mean, we win many cases. On, on EasyJet, you've obviously disagreed with the management at times. Are you happy with how the airline has been run today? As I said earlier, I think in May 2020, mid-COVID, when the airline was grounded, I was very worried that it would not survive financially, that it would actually go into insolvency. And I think the management team, the successive management teams, because some people have changed, 
have done a good job at, at rebuilding the, the traffic and the revenues and the business. And, and it's now bigger than it was before it. So I think that's, that's a great achievement. And that has taken a lot of investment from um, equity investors, stock markets, uh, loans, you know, lending facilities, bonds. So again, it goes back to my point. Not, not all the capital has to come from me. There are other people investing in these brands. And, and that's what keeps them going and keeps them thriving. So um, at the moment, I would say that you know, it's an incredibly challenging industry. But the way they've recovered out of COVID is, 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 is very, very much they should be congratulated for that. What did you learn from your father as a business leader? Because you've said he, he was effectively your first and, and only boss in, in business. And obviously now you're, you're working with younger entrepreneurs who, who are learning from you. So what did you learn from him? I've, I've learned many, many good things. And I've also learned how not to do things. I mean, he was very entrepreneurial. He knew how to take a business risk. He had a very good sense of timing of markets. As, as you may or may not know, shipping is completely cyclical, which means you have to know when to buy ships and when to sell ships. So for, he, he taught me how timing is everything and you have to time your, your entry into an asset and you have to know what to sell as well. And that applies to ships, but it also applies to airplanes, it applies to shares, it applies to real estate. So time, timing is everything. And he was very good at market timing. He was also very, um, very old-fashioned in the way he ran his business because in, in the end, it was a business, you know, with 50 ships and employing thousands of people. And he was still very concentrated in the way he ran it. So he didn't know how to delegate. And I think I, think I became better than him at delegating in the end. When you initially pitched the idea of the airline to him, was he supportive straight away or, or did he take some convincing? Well, he asked a few questions, but I think he also was... Um, proud of the fact that I was going to go out there and build the brand because obviously the shipping industry doesn't become famous. So, you know, he, my, my father was active and alive, say, for the, you know, for the first few years of the airline, and therefore he did fly on the airline. <laughs> and he was very proud of the fact that his son created this. And, you know, I remember he used to come off the plane and complain about the coffee, the quality of the coffee. And I said, Dad, they're not flying for it because of the coffee. <laughs> and I said, don't worry about the coffee. They're not flying for the coffee. They're flying for the price. Sestelios is now looking to help young entrepreneurs through his foundation and awards. A top prize of £150,000 is available for a promising entrepreneur under the age of 35 who has built a business in the UK in the last five years and grown it to at least £1 million a year of revenue. We've been running uh, awards for entrepreneurs in the various countries that I call home, if you like, including the UK, for many years. In the UK, we've been working with um, Lena Cheshire, the well-known disability charity, to give an award for people who started a business and they have a disability, which is a very inspiring type of award. And uh, the winners have been truly inspiring. But obviously, it's more narrow. So we decided to start another award in parallel without stopping the other one that encourages young people to start a business. So we are trying to encourage young founders of startups in the UK to do more startups, to do better, to create more jobs in the UK. So that's the charitable nature of this award. Now, uh, we'll be doing it in Greece. We'll be doing it in Cyprus. Uh, as I said, we've been doing it in the UK with the angle of disability. Now we're doing it with the, uh, the age criteria. So the, the winner will be uh, less than 35 years old and has 
started a business in the UK within the last five years, and they can show on UK companies' house audited accounts with revenues of more than a million pounds. So we're looking for truly exceptional and inspiring individuals. And the applications are open until the end of February on Stelios.Foundation, the website of the foundation, which is Stelios.Foundation, and the website accepts applications until the end of February. How passionate are you about giving back to young entrepreneurs? Uh, I think it's one of the best ways to create new jobs in an economy. I mean, I started it in um, Cyprus to help people cross the divide. As you may know, Cyprus is a divided country, the Greek Cypriot part and the Turkish Cypriot part. And we thought that it's a great way to encourage the people to cross the divide and go and meet people from the other community and create a joint venture business together and create jobs and prosperity and trust and, and, and um, you know, and, and sure there's lasting peace on the island. In Greece, we started it during the financial crisis, which Greece has finally come out of. And, and you know, I think we, we selected many uh, winners, which really created substantial businesses in Greece and prospered. And of course, the, the last crop uh, we had last cohort last year, there were some very inspiring businesses, you know, the Netflix of Greece and um, YouTube that has run a, runs a financial channel, or, you know, all in Greek for Greek entrepreneurs and has built a substantial business out of it. So some very new economy businesses. So it, it's a great way to give back to society whilst I do what I enjoy, you know. I give in other ways. I mean, we give food to people who are in desperate need. That's the other end of the spectrum, if you like. So we do both. But um, I think... Encouraging entrepreneurship is a great way to help the economy, to create jobs. Obviously, you have financial criteria for the entrepreneurs and their businesses, but what are you looking for in the individuals themselves? What skills and approach do you think marks out entrepreneurs? Well, for me, the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who wants to be their own boss and is willing and able to take financial risk with their own money. I mean, they might raise other other money, other capital, in order to scale up a business, you have to raise other capital. I mean, I raised other capital in many of my businesses. But fundamentally, you start with risking your own money, and you may win or lose, and you have to be able to deal with the risk and manage it and manage the upside. And um, also the fact that we want to be our own bosses in the sense that, we, you know, I, I can't imagine myself going and working for a big company. I want to work for myself. What is your main message to them if there is a message at all what what is sort of the best advice that you can pass on to them and want to first of all although maybe i'm known for marketing ideas and promoting businesses and brands i'm also a great believer in having a good accountant by your side and having a good lawyer by your side you know after all these years i i'm almost an amateur lawyer and i'm an amateur accountant myself but, you know, uh, don't forget or underestimate the need to have monthly management accounts. Do tally up and the balance sheet and the P&L work, you know, they, they work in tandem and they calculate and reconcile. You know, to have a good lawyer by, you, by your side to, to protect your legal rights and uphold the rule of law. So get a good lawyer, get a good accountant, focus on marketing. It might not be your own marketing ideas, hire marketing people. In any event, most marketing now happens online. So... If you're not an expert in online marketing, you probably have to hire someone to do that for you. And, and you know, go there and find customers. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer 
is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch, where you will get news and analysis sent to your inbox throughout the week and updates when our new podcast episodes go live. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.